You guys know how much I love when we get a sponsor whose product I already use every day. When Bombus approached us to sponsor the show, I look at my feet, I look at my drawer, and I'm like, sure, I have Bombus everywhere. They're the most comfortable socks I've ever worn. I love the arch support system. It provides extra support where you're going to need it the most. And it actually feels like a hug around your foot without feeling like it's compressing. But the thing we like the best in my family is we like low-cut socks and we like the little padding in the back that keeps your shoe from rubbing and giving you a blister. For my athletic and active daughter, that is the biggest selling point. And what I love about the company is for every pair that they sell, they donate a pair. Socks are the number one most requested item in homeless shelters, which I know from experience. They've sold and donated over 9 million pairs. Just like Bombas are the perfect socks for my daughter to wear from her volleyball practice to her dance classes, they're also the perfect socks for me to wear as I'm laying on the couch watching true crime documentaries on Netflix. These socks are designed for everyone's comfort. Insight listeners get 20% off their first order. Just go to bombas.com slash insight, that's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com, and you'll get 20% off your first order. It's bombas.com slash insight, and you can use promo code insight. On Halloween of 1975, 15-year-old Martha Moxley was found in her own yard, beaten to death. The town's police force had not investigated a murder since 1949. With a shaky investigation, it wouldn't be until 2002 that a conviction would be secured. The man found guilty was Michael Skakel, Martha's neighbor who was also 15 at the time of the murder. But the conviction would only stand for a decade before a successful appeal brought us right back to square one and the question, who killed Martha Moxley, was being asked again. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie? I am doing very well, actually. How are you? I'm good. We have a really big case to get into tonight, so I think we should probably just jump right in. This case is very big and very complicated. Much like the Natalie Wood case, I decided to get sources from each side. So one of our main sources is Mark Furman's Murder in Greenwich, which was published before Michael Skakel's arrest and trial. But it takes the stance that Michael Skakel was the killer. And this was a pivot from the more popular theory at the time that his older brother Thomas was responsible. The other main source was the book Framed by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. This book was published after Michael's conviction was overturned. And this takes the stance that not only did Michael not do it, but no Skakels were involved. I've wanted to cover this case for a while. I grew up in Connecticut. I was surprised when I saw that not a lot of podcasts have tackled this case. Then I started researching and realized why there is a lot here. So we're going to give this the insight treatment. We're going to take a look at the information that seems most weighty and present this somewhat complicated story in a way that hopefully makes sense. But we're going to do something we don't usually do. In fact, we've never done it before. We're going to split this episode into two parts since it is literally twice the length of one of our usual episodes. Part one will cover us up to the trial of Michael Skakel, and part two will cover the trial, the appeals, and the other suspects. So to start, we have three things we need to discuss just to set up the rest of the story. We have to talk about where it happened. Then we need to talk about the families involved, Martha Moxley, the victim and her family, and also the Skakels, which is the family that provides us with most of the suspects we'll be discussing. This murder happened in Greenwich, Connecticut, where both the families lived. It's pretty common for the wealthy, particularly those who want to raise their children outside of New York, to live in this area of Connecticut. Greenwich to the middle of Manhattan is only about a 45-minute drive, though many take the train that runs right through Greenwich. Now, Greenwich is the wealthiest city in Connecticut, which is saying something because Connecticut has several wealthy cities. 
Greenwich is home to any number of actors, musicians and famous business people. You know how you go on Wikipedia and it has a section in the write-ups for cities on notable residents? Well, Greenwich, though it only has around 60,000 residents, has an entire wiki page that's solely devoted to listing their famous residents and former residents. Within Greenwich, the Moxleys and the Skakels lived in the Belhaven neighbourhood, which is one of the wealthiest neighbourhoods within this wealthy city. Belhaven is also somewhat cut off from the rest of Greenwich. It juts out into the Long Island Sound, which is surrounded by water, and the area that is connected to Greenwich is cut off by the interstate that runs through southern Connecticut. There are only two or three ways to get into the neighbourhood, and there are neighbourhood security guards at the entrances, and they patrol the streets. It is surely the safety of Belhaven that attracted families like the Moxleys to the area. The Moxleys were new to Belhaven. They moved there just 18 months before Martha's murder. They had been living in the Bay Area in California for many years, but Martha's father David was given a job transfer to New York City. He was an executive at one of the largest accounting firms in the world. Dorothy, who was Martha's mother, she was a stay-at-home mum to their two kids, John, who was 17, and Martha, who was 15. The Moxley family was tight-knit and down-to-earth, which seems to contrast some of the other residents of Belhaven, including their neighbours, the Skakels. But the Moxley parents had grown up outside of this world of million-dollar homes, and their Midwestern upbringing made them very friendly and very approachable people. In their 18 months in Greenwich, Martha, John, Dorothy made a lot of friends. David was well-liked, but he worked a lot, and he traveled for work. So he was focused more on work and then family time when he was home. And in fact, he was away on a business trip the night Martha was murdered. Martha's diary was later taken into evidence by police, and some of the entries were used at trial. So we do get a little insight into the private thoughts of Martha. She turned out to be a really rather normal 1975 American teenager. She occasionally drank. She occasionally smoked pot. She noticed that boys were starting to notice her, and she would flirt and she'd kiss boys. She got mad at her mom for grounding her from going to a concert. Very normal things. One thing that has been said is that Martha wrote about issues she was having with Michael Skakel, though the incidents are within the normal range of what I remember from teenage drama and even what I see with my own kids. Like, one instance, Martha was dating a boy named Peter, but Thomas Skakel, who's Michael's brother, was interested in her, and he was flirting pretty aggressively with her. Michael accused Martha of leading Thomas on. She noted in her diary that Michael was drunk during that incident and that he and his brothers almost got into a drunken fist fight over name-calling. I mean, my teens don't drink, but, you know, they'll get into arguments about things that seem so minor. Martha said she left when this fight was happening and she wasn't ever going to go back. But then a few days later, her diary entries show that she did go back to the Skakel house and everything was fine. So, you know, just like happens with teenage drama and relationships, things seem so intense in the moment, but they blow over quickly. So that brings us to the Skakels. The Skakel family was a large family of six sons and one daughter, and they were considered incredibly unruly. Wealth in the Skakel family was generational, and they were extremely wealthy through family business. The father in the family was Rushton Skakel, and he found himself a single father to his seven children. Anne Skakel, the mother, had died in March 1973 from a very aggressive cancer. Rushton, from all of reports, he wasn't prepared to ever be a hands-on parent. The Skakel kids remembered that when their mother died, Rushton basically told them, your mother is dead, feel free to cry in your rooms. And then they moved on. That was the beginning and end to his counselling of his seven grieving children. Of these seven children, two of them are central to our story, and those are, of course, Thomas and Michael. And they are 17 and 15, respectively, in 1975. And they'd be the same age of the Moxley children. And they were both friends of Martha's. 
Julie Skakel, who was the only girl in the family, she will come up again later and she was slightly older at 18. Rushton fell deep into alcoholism for years after his wife's death. It seems like he was already partway there before her death, but he was unable to cope afterwards. He alternated between ignoring his children and being abusive in his rage. He targeted Michael specifically, and he didn't intervene when Thomas also began abusing his brother physically when they were teenagers. But when Rushton wasn't disciplining them by screaming and hitting them, the kids were largely unsupervised, and residents in the town generally described them as being wild and out of control. Another important thing to note about the Skakel family, it's often said that the Skakels are Kennedys, and this is only sort of true. In 1975, the Kennedys were the closest thing America had to royalty. They were wealthy and they were civically active. For those outside the United States who don't know a lot about the Kennedys, John F. Kennedy had been president of the United States from 1961 until he was assassinated in 1963. Ted Kennedy was his brother, and he served as a senator for nearly 47 years until his death in 2009. Their sister, Eunice, is the person who founded the Special Olympics. And then another brother, Bobby Kennedy, served as U.S. Attorney General, then he was a senator, and he was running for president when he was assassinated in 1968. Bobby's wife was Ethel Skakel, Rushton's sister. So, no, the Skakels were not Kennedys. They were, however, first cousins to Bobby and Ethel Kennedy's 11 children. But in 1975, the Kennedys and the Skakels were largely estranged and had been for over a decade. The Skakels were conservative Republicans and the Kennedys were famously Democrats. The Skakels were open about how they voted against John F. Kennedy in the election And then when Ethel got tickets to JFK's inauguration for her family, they gave them to homeless people. These actions, which happened 15 years before the Moxley murder, really hurt Ethel, and she and her family became estranged. When Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, the Skakels attended the funeral, along with literally thousands and thousands of other people. But Ethel's children and Rushton's children didn't even meet at the funeral. The Skakel children only met their Kennedy cousins one time in childhood, and it wasn't until they were adults that they connected. This new generation of Skakels and Kennedys, they weren't holding on to those old family grudges. This reconnection of the family lines, though, didn't happen until the 1980s. So in 1975, we have Martha and her family living in Belhaven across the street from the Skakel family. And the Skakel home also included household staff. They had a nanny, a cook, a gardener, and a live-in tutor. The very day Martha was murdered, which was October 30, 1975, this live-in tutor, Ken Littleton, moved into the home. Ken was a 23-year-old teacher. While Rushton had a nanny for the children, she wasn't able to really keep the boys in line and he wanted to bring in a tutor to increase the discipline within the home and help the older boys with their schoolwork in exchange for room and board and a small sipping. The older boys struggled with their schoolwork. As an adult, Michael would be diagnosed with dyslexia, but he also had an abusive father and at 15 a serious drinking problem and neither of those things exactly helped either. The other notable employee living in the Skakel home was the gardener, Franz Witten, and he's also known as Frank. We will circle back around to him later when we talk more about suspects and persons of interest because he is a real character himself. Now, with the backstory out of the way, we are up to the actual incident. October 30th is the night before Halloween. In Connecticut, we called this mischief night. Teens would toilet paper trees, throw eggs at houses and cars, ding-dong ditch where you ring the doorbell and then run. I mean, I grew up with this being normal, but as a homeowner now, I'm pretty glad I don't live somewhere where this is a thing. I remember as a kid, they wouldn't sell eggs to teenagers for at least a week leading up to mischief night. Martha and her friends had decided to go out for the night and engage in some of these minor acts of vandalism. Martha had stayed out 
very late the week before, and she had been grounded, but her mother decided to let her go out for the evening with the promise that she would be home by 9.30. With this promise to be home early made, Martha and her friends went around the neighbourhood for a bit. They stopped at the Skakels, but the family was down at the Bellhaven Club having dinner with their tutor, Ken Littleton. It was his first night there, but he already was displaying poor control of the children as he let the teenagers drink at dinner. Rushton was away on a hunting trip for the weekend. A bit after 9pm, Martha and the two friends who were still with her, Helen and Geoffrey, they returned to the Skakels and this time the kids were home. Martha had just started to get to know the Skakels in the months leading up to her death. The Skakels all attended a private school, whereas Martha went to a local public school, so their paths didn't cross all that much. While they were neighbours, we are talking about a neighbourhood where some people have full-size tennis courts in their yards. Everyone owned enough property and there were enough trees for privacy that you could go a whole year without seeing your neighbour. The teens all piled into one of the Skakel's cars to sit around and listen to music, you know, typical teenage type stuff. It was Martha and Michael in the front seat and Helen and Geoffrey in the back. But then Thomas came out of the house to get an eight-track tape from the car. When he saw Martha there, he decided to get into the car and hang out with them for a bit. From Martha's diary entries from just a month or so before, we know that Thomas was interested in Martha romantically, so he got in the front seat to sit next to her. Around 9.15 to 9.30, two of the other Skakel children came out of the house with a cousin and told everyone, get out of the car. They were driving back to the cousin's house to watch the broadcast of Monty Python's Flying Circus. This was back in those dark, dark days where you had to actually watch TV when it was broadcast because you couldn't record it or stream it. Michael reportedly invited Martha to go watch the show with them, but she was already butting up against her agreed time to go home. She didn't always have a hard and fast curfew, but she had promised to be home around 9.30 because of what had happened the week before. Before she left, she and Michael confirmed their plans to go trick-or-treating together the next night. The only Skakel girl, Julie, had also left the house somewhere around this time frame to bring her friend Andrea home. Those who were at the cousin's house to watch Monty Python would say Michael was there with them. Ken Littleton, the tutor, would say that he was told Michael was going over there when they left the home. Everyone who would stay at the Skakel house would say that they did not see Michael at home after 9.30 until he returned around 11.30pm. The only exception was Julie's friend Andrea. She would say that she had the impression Michael was at the house and she may have seen him there after everyone else left. But the thing is whether Michael was at the house at this point or not is what a lot of this case hinges on. According to Helen and Geoffrey, Michael, whether he went with his other brothers or not, was not outside with them after this point. Left outside the Skakel house after the other kids left were Martha, Thomas, Helen and Geoffrey. Martha and Thomas were flirting pretty heavily with some playful roughhousing and it was making Martha's friends uncomfortable. Not that the flirting was over the top or anything, but just that feeling of being the third wheel made them uncomfortable, so they left. Thomas would be the last person to see Martha alive, aside from her killer assuming Thomas wasn't her killer. But we won't make that assumption. Like we'll say throughout this episode, we'll circle back around to these various boys and men when we talk about the suspects. Thomas's initial story was that he went Back into the house a little after 9.30 when Martha left for home. He had a report to work on, and it was about Abraham Lincoln or log cabins or Abraham Lincoln's log cabin. I mean, something like that. But it did turn out to be a lie. Police would later check at his school, and no such assignment had been given. And the truth is, Thomas wasn't exactly the type of student who would have been doing it anyway. But around 10.15, he went to the room that Ken Littleton was staying in, and Ken confirms the story. Ken was watching The French Connection on TV, and Thomas asked if he could come in and watch with him. 
The time was confirmed because Ken told police which scene was on when Thomas came in the room and they were able to do the math of how long that was into the movie. So this leaves a gap of 45 minutes of Thomas's night unaccounted for. He was supposedly doing a homework assignment no one assigned. Thomas, a poor student, wasn't likely doing this. Thomas would, years later, give a new story that fills in some of this gap. He said he was actually with Martha for about 20 minutes after everyone left them alone. The pair engaged in heavy petting before she left, hurrying home because she was out about 20 minutes later than she had permission for. Thomas said he lied to the police because he didn't want to get into trouble with his father. Now, Rushton may not have been too engaged with his kids, but he had a very religiously conservative view of sex and would have come down very hard on this had Thomas confessed this while he was still a teenager. Rushton's kids were allowed to drink and run wild, but to him, sex was just too far. That was off limits. So this new timeline would put Thomas and Martha parting at more like 9.50, with Thomas having about a 25-minute gap before Ken Littleton sees him again. We need to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor before we get back to this very detailed case. Okay, friends, you know, you come home, the first thing you do is take off your bra. I used to be that person. I have found myself getting ready to go to bed and I realize I'm actually still wearing my bra because these third love bras are so comfortable. They have a quick fit finder quiz online. You just answer a few questions in less than a minute and you will know what size bra to order. Third love offers double the number of sizes most other brands offer. And because half of all women fall in between the standard cup sizes, Third Love also has half cup sizing. Of course, having a good fitting bra is going to be more comfortable, but they go beyond that. They are tagless labels. There's no itching. The straps aren't going to slip. The fabrics are soft and smoothing and use super thin memory foam. And they take customer input seriously and recently launched the most requested style, cotton t-shirt bras, and cotton underwear. They spent two years developing and perfecting their cotton collection, and the result is an incredibly soft, smooth, and breathable bra that you're going to want to wear every day. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash site to find your perfect fitting bra and get that 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash site for 15% off today. Martha made it off to Skakel property. One of the things that makes this case break my heart is that she nearly made it home. The way her driveway was at the time, it had two entrances. It wasn't really a circular driveway. It had a straight part from the road like a normal driveway, but there was also a quarter circle curve off of it. There was a grassy area between the two entrances with a few bushes and trees. Martha was on that grassy area when she was struck with a golf club from behind. There was only a small amount of blood in this area, but there was blood and tissue on the driveway because she was dragged across the driveway to a more secluded part of the property where a tree blocked the view from the street. The rest of the blow seemed to have occurred here because there was significantly more blood here. The golf club broke at some point, either through the brutal beating or perhaps the assailant broke it on purpose. Part of it was then used to stab Martha. After this, she was dragged to another spot on the property under a pine tree. Now, it's also believed that it is possible she was not stabbed until she was under the pine tree. The exact sequence isn't clear. Her pants were pulled down and her underwear had been described as being rolled down. Other than a smear of blood on her thigh that may have been the assailant touching her there, there was no evidence of any sexual assault happening. Now, we do know from far too many of these cases that sexual assault does not always mean forced intercourse, and not all sexual assaults leave signs, but this is what the authorities determined. Martha was left under the pine tree in a semi-fetal position and nearly lying on her stomach with her head turned to the side. 
part of the golf club was under her and she had an imprint on her face from lying on it. Between 9.50 and 10.30, multiple neighbors reported their dogs going crazy with barking. Martha's friend Helen said her dog wouldn't stop barking even when they were trying to shush him. Helen lived on the same side of the street as the Skakel house, so she was across from the Moxley's property. She said her dog was standing on the edge of their property near the road facing the Moxley home while he was barking his head off. And this was not the only dog going crazy either. A number of neighbors reported this. Dorothy was inside painting like window frames in her second floor bedroom when she heard noises from outside. She heard one, possibly two, male voices, and she believed they were teenage voices, but she looked out and didn't see anything. She was used to hearing teens cut through her yard, but this didn't sound like friendly voices, so she was concerned enough to look out. She even turned on the outside light to see better, but didn't see anything. Similarly, the nanny at the Skakel house heard a commotion of some sort and sent Ken Littleton out to check into it. Ken heard weird noises that creeped him out, but nothing that was alarming enough to investigate. So based on these noises, plus what Martha's autopsy would later show, the time of death was eventually put to be between 9.30 and 10.30. However, the state would... Many, many years later, try to make the case that it could have been as late as 1.30 in the morning. But we'll get there when we talk about the trial. Dorothy finished painting, she cleaned up and went downstairs to watch TV, which is where she was when Martha's brother John came home at around 20 after 11. Martha wasn't home and Dorothy was more annoyed than worried at this point. If you remember, Martha had recently stayed out really late. This could have been just another night of Martha pushing boundaries. John also wasn't worried. He was the older brother who took a little joy out of his perfect little sister being in trouble. So John got back into his car to drive around to Belhaven to see where Martha and her friends were and to tell her to get home. He said he drove around for about 30 minutes. Because of how separate Belhaven was, he stuck to that area on his drive. He assumed Martha and her friends wouldn't have left the neighbourhood on foot. Dorothy fell asleep waiting on Martha and woke back up around midnight, which is when she started calling Martha's friends. Helen told her about having last seen Martha at the Skakel's house with Thomas, so Dorothy called over there. Julie answered and woke Thomas up, asking if he knew where Martha was, and he said no. She called a couple more times in these overnight hours, getting the same answer that Thomas said goodnight to Martha at around 9.30 and went inside to work on his homework. She also called other friends. In the event Martha was having a sleepover without telling her mother or if she maybe was out with some other friend, but she wasn't at any of those houses, of course, and all of her friends were already in for the night. Her boyfriend had been home all night and hadn't seen Martha at all. John did another drive around 3.30 in the morning, except this time he did leave Belhaven and drove through the surrounding areas and didn't return until 6am. And that's one version of what happened. One of the issues with any cold case is that memories fade, they change a little. John did search at some point that night by car, but the amount of time he spent and the exact time he went, it kind of varies between retellings. So this is more an approximate. Dorothy did call the police overnight around 4 a.m. and she gave a statement to the patrolman that Martha wouldn't have run away and had never stayed out that late. While they didn't search the whole property, they did check through the house and then they checked in a cottage that's outside the main house. John had a friend come over in the morning after the sun came up, so they had daylight, and they also searched the property. In retracing their search, the friend did say they got rather close to where Martha's body was, and he's actually not entirely sure how they missed seeing her. There were more phone calls that night and into the morning, back and forth. Some of them were to the Skakel house, some were to other friends. But around 10 a.m., Dorothy decided to go over to the Skakel house herself, since that's where Martha's friends had last seen her. 
She asked Michael about Martha, and he said he didn't know anything, but according to Dorothy, he didn't look very well. She said he looked hungover, which was a pretty fair assessment because he was. The Skakels had a camper on the property that the kids sometimes hung out in, so they also searched that to see if Martha had, I don't know, possibly gotten drunk and fell asleep in there. It wouldn't be until 12.15 that Martha was found. Another neighbourhood teen was cutting through the yards where the pine tree was. Now, this was a pretty common path that kids took when they were cutting through the neighbourhood. As she walked near the pine tree, she saw Martha's body. So let's pause and look at the location of the body. The body was moved twice, first from the driveway, which was in full view of the street to the area behind the tree. Now, this makes sense. You don't want to commit cold-blooded murder in full view of the neighbours. The beating continued, and then the body was dragged off to another concealed spot. And people read this two ways. One way to interpret this is that it means this was someone familiar with the area because they knew the spot Martha was in wasn't secluded, so they moved her somewhere less visible from neighbouring houses. Someone unfamiliar with the area would have thought the second spot was fine since it was dark and they wouldn't know there were more trees further back on the property, particularly this pine tree with its low-hanging branches. But you could also argue that this proves it was someone unfamiliar with the area since the pine tree looked like a good place to conceal a body but was actually along a well-known and well-used unofficial path through the neighbourhood. And seeing as a teen passing down the path found Martha's body the next day, it definitely wasn't as concealed as one might think. There was some tall grass nearby that would have kept the body concealed for days, and anyone who knew the area would have hidden the body there. Now, both sides are equally as confident in their interpretations of this crime scene. But this is, of course, assuming the killer cared to conceal her body for days. Maybe they just wanted it concealed for the night so they had time to clean up and dispose of any bloody clothes or evidence. Or if they weren't from Belhaven, it would give them several hours head start to get out of town. So to me, the concealment doesn't point to any specific direction as far as someone close to the family or someone from the outside. And I completely agree with that. I think like a lot of things in cases, they can confirm what you've already decided is true versus give you a really insightful clue. And I think this is one of those pieces. I mean, the first thing that I thought when reading about the crime scene was that they never intended her to be hidden for a long period of time. It was just a means to the end. That's where they left her because she wouldn't, they wouldn't be seen immediately. Right. I definitely think the concealment was just for the sake of a head start whether it's cleaning up and getting rid of evidence or getting out of town. And so I think where she was left, you know, it did what they wanted it to do. So it was a fine spot, whether they lived there or not. One thing Mark Furman mentions in his book is that based on his interpretation of the autopsy and the crime scene, he believes Martha was beaten in location two, left for 30 minutes before someone came back and stabbed her and moved her to where she was eventually found. If coming back 30 minutes later did happen, then this is definitely someone from the area. Someone unknown to Martha wouldn't take the risk of being seen in the neighborhood again. They would have just left. The police came out to the scene immediately, of course, and there were a lot of issues with this investigation from the word go. The last murder in Greenwich, Connecticut before this one was 1949. So investigating murders was not something the Greenwich Police Department had any experience with. Of the first two officers on the scene, one thought ahead and used the Moxley phone to call in the discovery of the body. By avoiding the police radio, he was also avoiding those who listened to the police scanner, which would be the media and nosy people like me and my grandpa, who used to sit and listen for ages to the very mundane happenings of our hometown. The other officer didn't think of this, so while one officer was calling the police department from inside the Moxley house, the other was announcing it on the radio to everyone listening. So a large number of people showed up at the crime scene from the start. And we've gone into this in so many other episodes of the possible problems with this, the contamination, the lost evidence, all of that applies here. 
There was a dog roaming freely that was licking up blood evidence while a police officer was petting the dog. The crime lab van pulled into the driveway and nearly over the path that Martha was dragged across because it hadn't been taped off. A dozen or so people had been very near her body in the hours after she was found, with a number of them having touched her and a few even having moved her body. And then there was an issue with the police files. The notes and reports weren't detailed. Items were missing. There aren't logs of everyone who arrived and left the scene or when they arrived and left. When Mark Furman interviewed people for his book, he would hear an officer named being present, but he couldn't find a report filed by that officer or any report that lists them. And when evidence was noted as being collected, there wasn't always a name of who discovered it. Now, not only does that make it for difficult investigation, it makes for a lot of issues for a case going to court. Contamination of a scene can be turned into reasonable doubt by any decent defence attorney if any forensic evidence did come to light. Found at the scene was the murder weapon. Again, it's something we're not sure who found the pieces, but the location of the pieces was noted. It was a Tony Penner six-iron golf club, and the grip was the only piece missing from the scene. Tony Penner golf clubs are reportedly rare, and a matching five-iron was found at the Skakel home. Rushton told investigators that his late wife had a set of Tony Penners that were then given to Julie. The family agreed to look around for more pieces of the set. The family owned several sets of golf clubs, and there were multiple clubs around the property. So the thinking here was that if the Skakels could produce a Tony Penna six iron fully intact from their set, then obviously theirs wasn't this broken up murder weapon. The Tony Penna six iron was never located that the Skakels owned. But as far as I can tell, neither were any others from that set. The Skakels gave the five iron to police who had metallurgical tests done on the pieces of the murder weapon to compare them to the five iron, and they matched. But I don't know enough about golf clubs to say that no other Tony Penna set would match this Tony Penna set, or if they were all just perfectly custom from start to finish. I just don't know. And that's not information that's really easy to just Google. But according to the investigation, they couldn't find anyone else in the area who owned clubs like these or any local stores that even carried them. Now, with the grip being missing from the murder scene, again, could be read two ways. The murderer took it because it had his fingerprints on it. But the other idea is that maybe he took it because of another identifying feature. Ann Skakel's name was on the leatherette grips of the Tony Penna clubs that she had owned. Now, the family maintains that the kids would mess around with the golf clubs and leave them lying around. So it was possible that someone picked it up from their yard and it was a weapon of opportunity. I think it's a little incredulous that this family had the money for a gardener and they would have random junk lying around their yard. But this has actually been confirmed by others in the neighborhood. The kids would just leave their stuff around. And that was the gardener's job was to go around and pick all that up. So they just left it around knowing eventually someone would pick it up for them. Before we go any further, we need to take one last break for a word from a sponsor. You know what's not smart? Making the lottery the centerpiece of your retirement plan. And you know what else is not smart? Letting your friends pick your karaoke song. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash site to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education and experience for your job, and then actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers across the US. And this rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash site. 
That's ziprecruiter.com slash site, S-I-G-H-T, ziprecruiter.com slash site. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Then Mark Furman started investigating this for his book and he raised the question of if the grip was at the scene to start with. Mark Furman says the two responding officers told him it was at the scene when they got there, still attached to the shaft. And the Moxley family doctor that came to the scene said he saw it as well. So where did it go? The Greenwich police say this simply isn't true. It was never at the scene. But with the scene not being secured the way it should have been, someone could have removed something from the scene without being detected. But then in 2017, it was reported that two people were claiming they found the handle and turned it over to police in 1999. Where they found it supposedly is interesting. It was at Michael's cousin's house, the same place he went to watch Monty Python. The trip to the cousin's house for sure happened before the murder, so why would the grip be there? Possibly the Skakels Golf Club had already been broken previously or it was not even at their house anymore. It brings the origin of the murder weapon into question. Regardless, Michael's attorneys wanted to see it so they could test it. If this was part of the murder weapon, they needed to see it if there was any forensic evidence that could be found. And something else I just thought of, could it be possible that the handle was from the murder weapon and they went to whoever killed Martha, took it back to the cousin's house afterwards, days later, weeks later? The problem with this second statement of it being turned over to the police in 1999 is that the Greenwich police don't have a report of taking this piece of evidence in. So we're back at the same place we are with the stories of the grip being at the scene. The police say it wasn't there and they didn't take it into evidence, but there are people saying the opposite. Now, we don't know that the police lost this piece of evidence at any point in this case, but police losing evidence in general, I mean, it's something we don't want to think about happening, but it does happen. No one's perfect and things like this can happen. Whether the grip was taken into evidence or lost, we do have a missing piece of evidence. A pair of jeans and a pair of shoes went missing that were believed to have blood on them. The jeans had a laundry tag in the pocket that showed they belonged to a friend of Michael Skakel's from camp, and the shoes were supposedly his as well. Somehow Michael ended up with these items, though it would have been odd if he was wearing the jeans since they were reportedly quite a bit too big for him. Forensic tests of the evidence over the years haven't produced more than a few hairs, to be honest. Hair analysis is one of those forensic sciences that's in the process of being debunked. In 2015, the FBI admitted that their analysts gave flawed testimony about hair comparisons in about 95% of trials. A lot of the flawed testimony was in overstating the accuracy of the hair analysis. From my reading, it seems hair analysis is more accurate in ruling someone out rather than ruling them in. There were hairs consistent with the Caucasian head hair, which even if hair analysis was perfect, it wouldn't have helped much. Most of the suspects who we will be talking about today had some contact with Martha that night or lived in a space where she was, like the Skakel home. Unless it matches someone who claimed to have not seen Martha recently, there would be an explanation for a hair to be on her. There was also a single negroid hair found in the sheet used to cover Martha's body, but it was written off as likely coming from the one black officer on the scene. The investigators did a wide search of the area, as well as a door-to-door canvas, They were focused largely on finding the missing piece of the golf club, as well as taking statements from any witnesses. With Thomas Skakel being the last one to see Martha alive, he was questioned and took a polygraph. A lot of people have been polygraphed over the years, and some passed, some failed, and some were inconclusive. The polygraphs given were largely disregarded unless it fit a particular theory. For instance, Thomas passed his shortly after the murder, yet remained a suspect for decades. But others who passed were never looked at again. 
So we're not going to mention every single polygraph that was taken in relation to this murder over the last 40 plus years. The Skakel home was searched with Rushton's permission. He returned from his trip the night Martha's body had been discovered, and he cooperated fully at first, even signing a consent to search form. Because of his cooperation, the police never filed for a search warrant. They didn't want to file it and put a cooperative neighbor on the defensive Rushton was also allowing his children to be interviewed at length without him present, without an attorney present. Either he sincerely didn't think his boys were involved or he figured if they were, they deserved to be caught. But he didn't appear to be throwing up any blocks in the investigation. But the way the police have handled things regarding the Skakels early on in the investigation, again, we can read this two ways. Is this willful cover-up or incompetence? The willful cover-up theory is that the police were protecting the wealthy and well-connected Skakels. Even though they were largely estranged from their Kennedy cousins, surely the Kennedys wouldn't have wanted or needed a scandal, particularly one involving the death of a young woman. Just six years before Martha's murder, Ted Kennedy, brother-in-law to Ethel Skakel Kennedy, he accidentally drove his car into a pond on Chappaquiddick Island. He managed to get out of the car and swim to safety. He left the scene and didn't report the accident until 10 hours later, which was after the car was already seen by a fisherman who reported it. The big issue here is that Ted Kennedy wasn't alone in the car. He was giving a ride to a 28-year-old woman named Mary Jo Kopechny, which, according to Ted, wanted to catch the last ferry off the island that night. There is a lot more to the story. We could do an entire episode on this with the various accounts of what Ted Kennedy did or did not do in the hours between the accident and the discovery of the car. But what's important here is that he pled guilty to a minor offence and was given a two-month jail sentence, which was the minimum, but the judge suspended it, so he never actually served any time. So a beautiful young promising woman died in 1969 due to the actions of a Kennedy. Did the family really want a similar story six years later involving a cousin to the Kennedys? The truth is there is no evidence that the Kennedy connection had anything to do with how this case was handled. It's almost certain the family watched it unfold and kept a close eye on the way things were going, but actually calling and interfering, there's just no proof. And there isn't a lot of evidence that the police tread that lightly with the Skakels. They questioned Thomas for hours. They gave him a polygraph. They searched the house They searched another home that the Skakels went to on the weekends. The Greenwich police did not have a lot of experience in homicide investigations, and they opted not to turn it over to the state, which is something we've seen other small police departments do in similar situations. They decided to handle it themselves. So it may have been just a lack of competence, a lack of education, a lack of experience, more than anything that got in the way. For instance, they never got the search warrant on the Skakel home. Now, that could be argued that they got the consent to search, so no big deal. Except it is a big deal, because a consent to search can be revoked, which is exactly what Rushton did months later. A consent to search is fine if we're talking about a witness or someone on the periphery of a crime. But when it's the house of a suspect, which Thomas Skakel absolutely was, the police need to be in full control. Had the department had more experience dealing with serious crimes like this, they likely would have known to get the search warrant. And also, they would have known how to smooth it over with Rushton with this whole, you know, just following procedure line. This would come back to bite them. Six months after the murder, after Rushton revoked his consent the police applied for a search warrant. In the application, they said they were looking for the golf club grip and Thomas's clothes from the night of the murder. Their application was denied. Too much time had elapsed. While we know a lot more about forensics and DNA today, possibly today it could be argued that the items had evidentiary value. But if Thomas was involved in the murder, he would have gotten rid of these things within six months. 
and no police officer saw anything during any of those searches of the Skakel home with consent that would give them probable cause to go back in. I really do think it's possible the Skakels did use their power and influence here, not being a Kennedy, but being a family of wealth and having access to certain lawyers and legal advice. And maybe they did use that to sway the investigation or more likely limit the investigation. I think there's definitely evidence of that throughout. And this will become more evident to me anyway in part two when we do get to the trial. They knew the system. They had connections. It was more than the average person had access to, and they definitely benefited from that. Personally, I think of the Skakel influence existed. It existed even without them having to do anything. It's just the way things work when someone is wealthy and they're powerful and they're connected. The police were aware of who the Skakels were long before this. The Skakels would hire off-duty police officers. Actually, I was reading that quite a few people would if they had a large event or party, they would hire them as security. So these are people that the police officers were moonlighting with for employment. So there was pretty much no way that the Skakel influence, even if the Skakels did absolutely nothing to imply it or to force it, it existed. It simply existed. I think there were enough people on the police force, though, that were looking so hard at Thomas Skakel that I don't know where the influence started and ended. Maybe it existed with some of the police officers, but it definitely didn't exist with all of them. And we'll see how the police officers and investigators in this case have been of different minds of who did it for the last several decades. Thomas Skakel was being looked at from very early on, being the last one to be seen with Martha. But another neighbour was also looked at from the start, and this was Ed Hammond. Ed lived next door to Martha, and his room looked right down into the yard where she was attacked. He was a 26-year-old graduate student, and he lived at the home with his mother. He was first contacted by police within a couple of hours of Martha's body being found during the knock-and-talk canvas they were doing in Belhaven. He consented to letting them go into his room, and they also took the clothes he was wearing the night before. They talked to people in Belhaven about him and found out he was regarded as being a loner with a drinking problem. The police report says that he and his mother signed consent to search forms, but the actual forms weren't in the report, so there is some dispute here. They said later that they did not give permission. Regardless, the home was searched, but nothing linking Ed to Martha Moxley was found. They still pushed him until he passed a polygraph and then they eased up immediately. I said we weren't going to get into all the polygraphs, but I just wanted to give a quick example of how these polygraphs were being used to steer the investigation and the weight they were given, even though we know they're not that reliable. So a passed polygraph all but ruled out Ed, but Thomas also passed a polygraph and it did little to deter the investigators from looking at him as a suspect. But we'll get back to Ed when we discuss suspects in part two. Over the years, investigators looked at a lot of people. We're not going to get into all of them. Some were very unlikely suspects, people entirely unconnected with Martha or even with the Greenwich area. Perhaps they committed a crime in New York that was similar, and that's what connected them. I personally think Martha likely knew her killer, or he at least knew of her. Bellhaven has a private security force, and they were patrolling. And I assume, like most towns with a mischief night, they had a few extra out to deter kids from engaging in vandalism. The entrances are monitored, so no one unknown entered the neighborhood by vehicle. There were some early thoughts that it could have been someone who came in on foot from the interstate that runs through Greenwich, but I think that's a little bit of wishful thinking on the part of residents who don't want to think that this violence and this horror came from one of their own. If this was someone entering the neighborhood for the purpose of a random assault, they didn't seem to come armed. The weapon used was a weapon of opportunity likely taken from the Skakel property. Had it been a length of pipe laying around, that would have been the murder weapon. I don't think anyone came from the outside to attack anyone without bringing a weapon. 
Also, the rage of the attack points us towards it being someone who knew Martha. While people do rage kill strangers, such as road rage incidents, they don't usually sneak up on someone and bash them with a golf club until the golf club breaks into pieces. That points to a personal connection. It's clear from early reports that there were two prime suspects based on the belief the murder weapon came from the Skakel home, and that was Thomas Skakel and Ken Littleton. But there was never enough evidence to arrest either, and the case grew cold. The Moxleys left Belhaven and moved to New York City after John had finished high school. David Moxley died of a heart attack in 1988. He was the one who kept in touch with the police and kept pushing them. So Dorothy then had to take over that role. But it was another Kennedy family scandal that really got the Moxley case to where it is today. And that's the 1991 rape case against William Kennedy Smith. So how William fits into the family? Well, William's mother is Jean Kennedy, sister to Robert F. Kennedy, So the Skakel's children's aunt Ethel is also William's aunt through marriage. In March of 1991, William was in Palm Beach, Florida, where he met a woman who he said he had consensual sex with. She said, though, it was rape. And in the end, the jury acquitted him. But because of who he was, a Kennedy, this case was big news, huge. The trial was broadcast, and I actually remember watching it. I was 12 years old, so totally appropriate. But, I mean, more evidence that my true crime interest goes way back. Whenever anything is big news like this, people look for a new angle to explore. Or in this case, I'll just say exploit. A rumor started going around that William Kennedy Smith was visiting the Skakels on the night Martha was murdered, the implication being that he may have been responsible. This rumor doesn't make any sense knowing what we know about the Kennedy and the Skakel family estrangement. The Skakels didn't even know the Kennedy cousins who they were blood-related to, let alone some cousin of their cousins. But the police still had to follow up on this lead. This lead, as weak as it was, got Martha's case back in the news over 15 years after it happened. The media and public attention to this case helped move it forward after all that time, which is really what we can hope for in any cold case. Public pressure and media attention really does work to close cases. Two authors began working on books on the case, and both would eventually be published in 1998. One is Murder in Greenwich by Mark Furman, and the other is Greentown by Timothy Dumas. Greentown is more of a retelling of what happened, and it skews a bit towards the Thomas Skakel did it side, or at least the original edition did. It has since been revised after the case eventually went to court. The Murder in Greenwich Books is a re-examination of the investigation, and it comes to what it was at the time, a somewhat surprising conclusion that Michael Skakel did it. Thomas was always the brother suspected in the murder. Michael was 11 miles away at the established time of death, and he was a short and scrawny 15-year-old boy at the time. Most people, including the police, looked right over him. Many of you would recognise the author's name that we've already mentioned several times, Mark Furman. This is the same Mark Furman who investigated the Nicole Brown Simpson and the Ronald Goldman murders. In O.J. Simpson's trial, his attorneys tried to paint Mark Furman as a racist cop who was trying to frame an innocent black man. Now, Furman denied this on the stand, including denying having used a particular racial slur in the last 10 years. Then the defence produced audio-taped evidence of him using that exact slur. Some observers feel that his credibility dropped at that moment, and low enough that the jurors were able to accept the possibility that the defence was right and the evidence may have been planted. Regardless of his role in that case, his years as an investigator did give him the background needed to take a look at this case. I do disagree with some of what he put in his book. He put in a lot of what-ifs. At one particular point, he was wondering if the Kennedys had called the Skakels or had they called the police or 
Had they called anyone else involved in the case in the days immediately after Martha was found? I had to go back when I read this and reread it to figure out if he was saying that phone records were saying this or if he was saying phone records might have said this, but he doesn't know. For the record, it was just him wondering. So even as someone who is reading the book with an eye out for conjecture versus facts, I had to reread some parts to make sure I was getting it straight. So if you do choose to read his book, I recommend watching out for that. It gets a little murky when he starts going into conjecture. But other than that, I do recommend the book. Happening alongside these books being researched, DNA testing came into use and old evidence from the Moxley murder was tested, but nothing was found. They never found any blood that wasn't Martha's or DNA from any other source. But this testing is why people looked at the Skakel boys changing stories with suspicion. It was after DNA testing was brought into the case that Thomas came forward with the story that he and Martha had filled around before she went home. Like we said, he claimed he lied initially to avoid the wrath of his father, but it was looking to some like he was explaining away why his DNA would be on Martha's body. Michael also had a new story, though his wasn't brand new. Other people have said Michael told the story as early as the early 1980s, but he didn't officially tell it until around the same time Thomas changed his story. This came out when Rushton, who was tired of his boys being under the spotlight as suspects, he hired a private investigations firm called Sutton Associates, and they were basically hired to investigate the case. This was in the early 1990s. This time, Michael told authorities that when he got home from his cousin's house, he didn't go right to bed like he said. He came into the house, but he left again. He first went to a cottage on another property where the family's housekeeper lived. Now, apparently, she had a habit of leaving her blinds open at night, even when she was undressed. And the neighbourhood boys knew about this, so Michael had gone to have a peep. Her lights were off, so Michael headed back home. He then got the idea to go to Martha's house. He said he was drunk and drunkenness made him bold enough to do this. He climbed the tree outside her house and started throwing pebbles at her window and calling her name. This was not as some seemed to believe the tree where she was found though. It wasn't even near it. As far as we know, Michael never put himself near Martha or her body outside the time they were in the car with their friends hours earlier. As it turned out, he was at the wrong window anyway. Martha's bedroom was the third story bedroom and Michael was tossing pebbles at her brother's window. John was downstairs at the time, so he didn't hear any of this. Michael then says he began masturbating while in the tree, but stopped because he didn't want to be seen and he realized how ridiculous he was being. I've seen some people say he used this as an excuse in the event his semen was found in the DNA testing, but that doesn't make a lot of sense because he's not saying he did this anywhere near where Martha's body was. As to why he didn't tell this story to the police in 1975, I think it's pretty obvious Would you tell this story if you didn't have to? He was 15. He was being raised in a home where he was beaten when he got caught with a Playboy magazine. Even without the fear of Rushton's anger, I can see why a teenager would never tell the story. And I'm honestly not even sure why he ever told the story. It doesn't really serve him at all. It wouldn't explain away any evidence that might be found, like Thomas's story would. It doesn't make him look less guilty for sure. I have no idea why he ever admitted this. In Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book on the topic, he says Michael is just like this. He just says things, even if they're against his own self-interest. The Sutton investigation is actually part of what put Michael forward as a suspect in the case. Some of the reports from them were leaked and Mark Furman used these to build his case. In 1998, shortly after Furman's book was released, an investigatory grand jury was convened to look at the case. In Connecticut, grand juries haven't been common since the early 1980s. Before 1983, a grand jury had to indict any case where the penalty was life or a death penalty. 
The state abolished this and replaced it with a probable cause hearing requirement instead. But they did keep the investigatory grand jury, which is more of a fact-finding grand jury. It can only be used under certain circumstances. The state attorney had to show that there was no other way to get the information they were seeking than to call a grand jury. Basically, they were admitting their investigation to that point had failed. And that's where we're going to leave this for today. Next week, we will cover the legal saga, and then we'll walk through the suspects that have been proposed in the case. Some we've actually already mentioned, but some don't come into the story until later. So we'll get back to this next week. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast, Twitter at Insightful Pod, Instagram at Insight Pod, or email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash insightpod. And a special thank you to Chesgrave Music for our new custom theme.